0: Well, good morning, Forest View. Thanks so much for joining us. It's so good to be gathered together here this morning, even if we're doing it virtually. Uh, I hope that you've had a great week. This morning, we are going to be concluding our Now What series. Now, originally, when we had conceived and envisioned this series, we anticipated the world, and specifically our world, to look a lot different than it currently is does. We were originally planning this series back three, four months ago, and as we were through that process of thinking through what we wanted it to be and what it to look like, we were trying to decide what we wanted to be calling and inviting our community to look like as we left the the COVID pandemic kind of behind us, as we began to be able to meet together again in person, as we began to have restrictions lifted and to be able to gather in each other's homes and and all sorts of other wonderful things like that. for those of you who can remember back all the way to like a month ago, uh, we originally had planned on being gathering together in person. Um, however, that hasn't happened as we saw the third wave hit, and we saw COVID numbers begin to rise, and we, as we now find ourselves in an extended lockdown and waiting to hear when that's going to be uh, lifted. And so this series was kind of birthed with this one intention, this one hope, uh, in terms of calling our community, what we're going to look like during this new time, this transition time in our life. And it feels very much like, I oh, know we're still stuck in our homes. We still can't gather together. And so my hope is, is as we reflect on this series, that this isn't just going to be a last one today, but this will be something that we continue to wrestle with as a community, as we enter into these summer months, as restrictions hopefully get lifted, and we're able to gather together. We're able to be in each other's homes and in yards and everything else. If you've got a Bible, I want to encourage you to open it up to Acts chapter 2. We're going to be starting at verse 42, reading to 47. This is a passage that we have looked at throughout this series. We've gone back to again and again. And our hope is, is that by looking at these first Christians, we would have a better understanding about what the gospel, the, the new kind of life and community that the good news of Jesus calls us to in our world. Let's read this together. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. All the believers were together and had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need every day they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. And the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. This morning, we want to zero in and focus on one specific aspect of their shared corporate life together. And that is specifically expressed as they talk about in, in verse, uh, what would that be, 46, where they say, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. This is a term that we often in our culture would use. We'd simply use the word hospitality to describe what it was that this, these first Christians were doing as they gathered together. Now, meals were a big deal in the ancient world. They carried with them a lot of weight. And as we've looked at this Jesus community, we've seen that they lived radically different lives than the world around them. Now, a few things that I think are valuable for us to know before we start to talk about this breaking of bread and gathering in one another's homes, in the hospitality, and I think that it's important for us to acknowledge that this is a group of people who are committed to following a crucified Messiah. Many of them had watched or at the very least had heard about Jesus being put to death on a cross. And it's important for us to realize why Jesus was put to death in the first time, first place, at least from the perspective of the ancient world and the culture around them. Why did Jesus? Why was he killed? And so here are things that got Jesus killed. Now, now number one would be the claims about his relationship with God. We see that when He's brought before the temple authorities, the religious elite, they come out with him and they essentially, uh, there's a various trial that grows and grows, but one of the major claims that ultimately tips the scale for them is the claim of blasphemy. And it's Jesus's intimate relationship that he claims to have with God. So that's one of the reasons why Jesus was killed. But there's two other ones I want to address. The second one is his criticisms of the temple. Jesus criticized the religious elite and he criticized the temple. And this brought a lot of tension between him and the religious leaders, obviously. And the final thing is this, who he ate with. Now, I do think it's interesting. Last week, we looked at the temple and the first Christians, their relationship to the temple, how they would go together to the temple, this potentially hostile place, this place that represented the religious elite who had put their rabbi, their Messiah, to death just a few months before. But this morning, And in this passage we look at, we're going to look at who he ate with, because this itself was a controversial thing to do in the ancient world. If you turn to Luke chapter 5, verses 29 to 32, we begin to get little glimpses of the mealtime habits of Jesus. Then Levi held a great banquet for Jesus at his house, and a large crowd of tax collectors and others were eating with them. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law who belonged to their sect complained to his disciples, why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? Now, we currently live in a, uh, a culture that it prides itself in being accepting and embracing difference and tolerance. But in the ancient world, who you ate with said a lot, and even more significantly You did not want to be eating with people who were deemed tax collectors and sinners. Quick little bit of context. In Jesus' time, they found, the people of Israel found themselves under the boot of the Roman Empire. Now, as Israel, the people called by God to be his light to the world, essentially to show the Gentiles who the one true God is— That was what they believed they were called to do and to be. But if you're a group of people and there is a Roman pagan empire, which is essentially oppressing you, overtaxing you, mistreating you, you feel like "Mm, this is not how things are supposed to be and the reason they found themselves under the roman occupation they found themselves in what we call kind of a it was a return from exile but it wasn't really like they were back home back to the way things were supposed to be the reason why was because of sin or at least that's what the religious elite claimed they believed that the reason why the romans were here that god had not driven them out was because of the impurity because of the sinfulness of many of the people in israel specifically tax collectors prostitutes, and other people who just did not follow through on all of the commands of God. And so Jesus here in this story in Luke, we find him not just hanging out that Levi, who is a tax collector, not just going to his house, but essentially Levi inviting all of his friends, all of his sinner friends to come and partake in a banquet party with Jesus. And the religious elite see this and they say, what is going on here. This is a criticism that is leveled at Jesus again and again throughout his ministry. Turn just a few pages to the right, Luke 15. The same accusation comes up again. Luke 15, verses one to two. Now the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. It seems that Jesus is well aware of what his critics think of him. In Luke chapter 7, verse 34, he even talks, speaks about himself in this way. He says, the son of man came eating and drinking, and you say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. New Testament scholar Robert Karras simply says this, Jesus was killed because of of the way that he ate. You can go to the next slide. Jesus was killed because of the way he ate. In the ancient world, when you ate with someone, you said something very profound about your relationship with that person. Joachim Jeremiah, as the New Testament scholar, writes this. It'll be up on the screen here. I want to read it to you. Even in the East today, to invite a person to a meal was an offer of peace, trust, brotherhood, and forgiveness. Sharing a table meant sharing life. Go to the next slide. In Judaism, table fellowship means fellowship before God for the eating of a piece of broken bread by everyone who shares in a meal brings out the fact that they all have a share in the blessing which the master of the house had spoken over the unbroken bread. The inclusions of sinner, or sorry, maybe stop there. Let me just simply say this. We see in Jesus' eating with the sinners, with the tax collectors, that, that he is extending this incredible invitation of grace. And love, which we will talk about in just a few minutes. But the first Christians seemed to embrace this aspect of Jesus' ministry. that, That gathering together and eating in one another's homes was not just simply a nice, fun thing to do, but was crucial, a crucial part of their community life, shared life together. It was through the practice of hospitality that the first Christians worked out what it meant to be a people shaped by the gospel. Let me read that to you again. It was through the practices of hospitality that the first Christians worked out what it meant to be a people shaped by the gospel. Now, Earlier on, we read about the accusations that were made towards Jesus. In Luke chapter 5, you find his response when they, the Pharisees, the religious leaders, they come to him and say, hey, why are you eating with tax collectors and sinners? Here is Jesus' response, Luke chapter 5, verses 31 to 32. Jesus answered them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have, come to, I have not come to call the righteous but sinners to repent. Again, as I was talking about, this was this viewpoint in their culture. Well, the reason we're in this mess is all your fault. Sinners, tax collectors. But Jesus' response is not, oh, all of you guys are the problem. He essentially says, no, this is the reason I'm here. I came to call sinners to repentance. I came to save the people who were lost and who are broken. I mean, the good news is that Jesus doesn't show up for the people who have it all together, for the people who are great at following all the rules. Jesus doesn't show up and offer the gift of resurrection life and forgiveness of sins to the people who deserve it, to the people who earn it, and it is not a reward. That's why we call it, one of the reasons why we call it such good news, we call it gospel, is because it's something that we can't earn. It's a gift, and it's always good news when you receive something that you could never get on your own. Now, the thing that is fascinating about the first Christians is that they were working out what does it mean to follow Jesus. Another term that we might use for hospitality would simply be the term table fellowship. And so the first Christians, they would gather together. They would welcome one another into each other's homes. They would share what they have, whether it be food or possessions or anything else, with one another. And it was their response to this good news because they had received so much grace from God and they felt the need No, no, this is not just something, a nice thing that we do, but this is an integral part to what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And it is through table fellowship that the first Christians begin to figure out what does it actually mean to live out this, um, this following of Jesus in their lives. Because at this particular time, there was not a step-by-step guide for how do you follow Jesus. There wasn't a book to read. In fact, the book was in the process of being written for this. And so most of the major issues that we encounter in the New Testament, most of the major issues that the early church was wrestling with and arguing over and trying to figure out are things that we see that flow out of table fellowship, that flow out of their lives being shared together. I want to give you three examples too quickly, and one we'll spend a little bit more time on. The first issue that we see arise out of table fellowship is an issue regarding communion and the divisions of class that are being seen within the Corinthian community in the city, in uh, this Roman city. You see, you had all of these different Christians who would gather together to share a meal and to share the Lord's Supper together. But the problem was is that you had some people within the community who were working at that particular time would be lower class jobs. They worked longer days, often much later than some of the more wealthy people. And so all the wealthy people would show up to celebrate communion first, and many of them were drinking all the wine and eating all the food, and there wasn't anything for when the poorer or the less high esteemed positions began to arrive. And the Apostle Paul sees this table fellowship or this break in table fellowship, and he says... You guys are doing it wrong. This is not how the Lord's Supper is supposed to work. It should not be taking the hierarchies and the divisions of the culture around you and then just letting them live out, continue to live out in your community. No, he says that as you gather together around the communion table, as you gather around in people's homes and break bread together you are declaring to the world a different way of seeing one another. You are a people who have been reshaped by the gift of grace that has come from God. And so it's time to do away with that hierarchy. The next issue, another issue that we find in the New Testament church wrestling with as they navigate and share life together through their table fellowship, is the issue of food that is sacrificed to idols. In the ancient world, there were all sorts of people, uh, or they were lived in pagan cities. And one of the things that you would often find happen is that many within those cultures, they would go out and they would buy the meat that had been sacrificed to idols. And there were some Christians who went, this is not something that we should ever eat. Uh, And then there were other Christians who said, no, no, we know that there's no such thing as these gods that this meat is being sacrificed to, so we can go and we can eat it together. The important thing, regardless of ultimately Paul comes down on one position in that particular argument, but but moving beyond that is simply to acknowledge that these issues are flowing out of their life shared together. It comes out of the messiness of when your life is opened up to others and trying to figure out how do we follow Jesus in this mess. The most significant one, I would say, is simply this, is that we find in Galatians, actually you find it in Acts chapter 11 as well, but it's about the inclusion of Gentiles into the people of God. Galatians 2, verses 11 to 12, if we get that up here. Uh, then Cephas, who's also Peter, came to Antioch. I oppose him, sorry, this should say, this is the Apostle Paul writing to a church in Galatia. And he's talking about a particular issue that he was seeing within that church, a division between the Jewish people And the Gentile people, who all through the Holy Spirit, all through Christ's sacrifice and work, have been united into one people. Here's what he says: When Siphas, the apostle Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. So Peter, Siphas, he before this other guy showed up and started looking down on this other group of people. He said Peter would go and he would eat with these people, the people that God had united and made one people. And then he stopped doing. It was like he was ashamed of them. It was, he was cutting off table fellowship with those people. But when they arrived, he began to draw back and separate himself from the Gentiles because he was afraid of those who belonged to the circumcision group. So essentially, there was this other group that was coming around saying, hey, you should have no part with Gentile Christians. They need to fully convert to Judaism. They need to undergo circumcision in order to be a part of this movement of Jesus. And here's what Paul continues to say. The other Jews joined him in his hypocrisy so that by their hypocrisy, even Barnabas was led astray. So other significant leaders within this community those who had been raised Jewish, they, they started to follow their lead and break table fellowship to, to no longer eat with these people. Go to the next slide. And then when I saw that they were not acting in line with the truth of the gospel, I said to Syphas in front of them all, you are a Jew, yet you live like a Gentile and not like a Jew. Go to the next slide. How is it then that you force Gentiles to follow Jewish customs? Essentially, what Paul is saying is he's saying because of what Jesus has done, you know that this is not the way of the people of God. Your breaking of table of fellowship is out of sync with the gospel. I, I love the way that Paul puts it here. Go to the next slide. He describes what Paul, Peter is doing, or he describes what Peter is not doing, is acting in line with the gospel. He says, you, you are not acting in line with the gospel. When we refuse to share and open up our lives with other people, specifically people who are different from us, but when we cut ourselves off and close ourselves off, we are not acting in line with the gospel. Because hospitality, both for Paul and for the first Christians, and I would argue for Christians today, hospitality is a reflection of the welcome we have discovered in Jesus. The Messiah and Savior who comes and eats with sinners, who invites us to the table with him, and who offers us new life, is reflected as the church engages in hospitality together. I would actually argue that one of the things that has happened throughout the history of the church, and specifically this came as churches became more financially uh, uh, capable. They were able to build buildings and hire staff and all those different things. And one of the things that we did is we pushed, we pushed hospitality away instead of it being a crucial, critical practice of the corporate life of the church, we made it a nice optional thing that happens on the side or on the periphery of the mission of the church. Instead of opening up our homes, instead of being communities that are intentional about being welcoming and inviting, we said, no, no, we're about a Sunday morning service. This is the most important thing that we do. And it's not to say that the Sunday gatherings and worshiping together and and the proclamation of the gospel and learning from scripture is not important. It it so is. But it was never meant to uh, replace or to move us to a place where we would ignore hospitality in our lives. Now, one of the things that I think is fascinating in this particular passage, Galatians chapter two, and Paul calling out Peter, is that in this? I think we see a beautiful example of strong words and a strong relationship. Rosario Butterfield, in her book on hospitality, the gospel comes with a house key, she talks about how there are strong relationships and there are strong words, right? Paul's words here are are very forceful. There's a lot of anger you can hear in them. He calls Peter out. He says, Peter, what you're doing is wrong. But there is a strong relationship that peter and paul have together there's few things more fruitless than strong words being said into a weak relationship i mean the perfect example of this is is like is when you're like stuff that you post on social media it's those arguments and debates that you see happen I remember a number of years ago I was first married uh, I was up one night and I was on Facebook again this is, this is about 10 years ago and there's someone had posted something and I was like oh I totally disagree this person has it all wrong and I didn't really know this person his name was Zach and so I decided I need to send a message to Zach or I need to type in on his Facebook page and respond to this and it started this back and forth and I found myself just typing and arguing and the and the, the debate just continued to grow and become more and more forceful and and it seemed like he he was ignoring all of the good points that I was making, and all the points he was making were rubbish. And so there's just back and forth continued to happen, heightening. And I just remember Julie coming out of the bedroom saying, Are you coming to bed at some point tonight? And I remember just being like, Zach is wrong. I need to correct him. And Julie being like, Who is Zach? And I, I don't know. I just saw him on Facebook. I'm not sure. He's a friend of a friend. That is a perfect example of strong words being had with someone, but there isn't a strong relationship. However, when there is a strong relationship and strong words are used, those can be powerful words that help us to reconsider and rethink our perspective and our actions. And I deeply believe that strong relationships Almost exclusively come through relationships that are established in table fellowship. They are face to face. I've been in your home or your house or your dorm room or whatever. That they are those kinds of relationships where you know that you rest secure with that other person even if there are differences, even if you or that other person is wrong one of the most significant things about the church practicing hospitality is that it begins to move us to just having uh, just interactions with people where it seems like everything is rooted in what that person thinks. And suddenly it moves into this realm of being, no, no, I care for that person. I've sacrificed for that person. I've given to that person and they have done those things to me as well. I don't think that it is a fluke or coincidence that we live in a current age of extreme polarization and that at its probably its greatest height for us in terms of the polarization happened when many of us were confined to our homes in lockdown because all of our interaction is just taking place through the internet or or other mediums that are just not going to be helpful. They are not face-to-face. There's no ability to create strong relationships in those settings. For us as Christians, the hospitality, can we go back to the slide just before this? Hospitality is a reflection of the welcome we have discovered in Jesus. As we open our homes to others, and not just to other Christians. In fact, actually, hospitality, I think in its richest and deepest sense, is about a welcoming of the stranger or people who are different from us and inviting them into our homes and sharing life with them. And as we do this, we are proclaiming to them and to the world the same welcome and embrace that we have received through Jesus Christ. The first Christians, they broke bread in their homes and ate together with glad and sincere hearts. Now, for us, we can't be in one another's homes. We can't go and break bread together or enjoy burritos together or whatever it is that we would like to be doing. In fact, we're not even really supposed to be leaving our homes, many of us. And so here's my invitation for you this morning. First off, what are the resources that you have right now that you can use to extend a welcome, a generous Jesus welcome to others? Is it a phone call to maybe a a coworker who you don't really know that well and you can reach out to them and simply welcome them to the workplace? Or maybe for you, it's about, there isn't a lot you can do right now, but you can schedule something for down the road. We don't know when we're gonna be allowed to go back out and meet together, but maybe it's contacting that person at work or that person who lives in your residence or whatever it is and saying, hey, I would love to go for a walk once this opens up. I know we don't know each other that well, but I would love to buy you a coffee and let's go for a walk. Or come over to the, maybe it's that family that's across the street that you don't really know that well and you're like, we've lived on this street for I don't know how many years and we don't even know them. Maybe this is the time to say, hey, give them a call, send an email, set up that time of going, hey, we would love to have a barbecue once this is all over. You can come over to the backyard and play or whatever it is. It is time for us to be Reaching out to others and extending the welcome, a glimpse of the welcome that we have received through Jesus. I simply want to say this. I know that that, especially there's some of you out there who are like, I am like an introvert on steroids. Like the, 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 this, All this lockdown stuff has kind of been like a blessing, and as much as maybe you miss gathering for church on Sunday mornings, this has just been so much easier because uh, you're just like, oh man, it means I don't have to go and say hi to people I don't know and all that kind of stuff. And I just want to simply acknowledge that, yes, extending an invitation of hospitality, welcoming people into your home or your dorm room or your apartment or whatever it is, is going to be awkward And the challenge for us as Christians who want to go and embody Jesus' presence in the world, I would just simply say this, that the calling on us is to embrace the awkward, is to charge into the awkward so that other people don't have to. To take that awkwardness upon ourselves and to seek out meaningful relationships with others and to live as beautiful expressions of the gospel of Jesus. We're going to transition now to a time of communion. And as we do, as we gather around the table here, it's a metaphorical table for us this morning, but we are reminded of the table, that, the fellowship, the table fellowship that Christ calls us to. I mean, Jesus describes himself as, as the one who came to save and call sinners to repentance. And in the communion table, we discover that's true of who we are. And it is through Jesus' gracious gift of life and forgiveness that we get to share in this beautiful life and relationship that comes from God. And so let's take part in communion together now.